Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your normal non-violent human from Earth, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode contains estranged death, alien attacks, and lethal lakes. Let's all head out to camp where we can learn how big of a fraud I am as I regale you with horror movie talk. Number 1, Come to Daddy, 2019, directed by Aunt Timpson. After receiving a letter from his estranged father, Norval goes to visit him at his cabin. His dad isn't nice to him. During a heated moment, Norval's dad picks up a cleaver and dies of a heart attack before he can kill Norval. Norval has to stay with the body until his mom arrives. Norval starts hearing strange things in the cabin. He finds old pictures of himself with his father and realizes the man that died wasn't his dad. Norval locates the secret hatch and finds his father chained up. Norval's real dad ran off with a bunch of money he was supposed to split with his friends who finally tracked him down and want their share. Norval kills one man in self-defense. Norval then kills the last remaining friend so that he and his mom will be safe. Norval makes it back to where his dad is and apologizes for never letting his mom move on. Greed is the killer. When I attended my first and for the foreseeable future last in-person Fantastic Fest, I foolishly didn't attend a screening of Come to Daddy. I remember all the showings being late and scheduled at the same time as events. What can I say? I like events. I can always catch a movie later on. Elijah Wood seems like a dude that chooses good projects. Whenever I see that he's in some weird indie movie, I know I'm in for a decent time. Come to Daddy is no exception. Before watching it, I hadn't looked into it all that much. I assumed it was going to be a slow burn movie about a son and his possibly homicidal estranged dad. Then dad dropped dead about a third of the way through. Whoa. I could easily say that was unexpected. At some point during Come to Daddy, I realized that it kind of reminded me of another wacky father and son movie called The Greasy Strangler. Turns out Come to Daddy's director, Aunt Timpson, was a producer for The Greasy Strangler. He also helped produce Turbo Kid, Deathgasm, and Housebound. The man's produced a bunch of gold is what I'm getting at. Come to Daddy is his directorial debut. Well, first feature at least. Come to Daddy is captivating. All the dialogue is fantastic. The dialogue is the perfect level of strange. It's odd and grin inducing. All the performances are great. I can't think of anything I've seen with Elijah Wood in it that I completely dislike. As a kid, I remember Digging North a lot, the movie where tiny Elijah travels the world looking for parents, 
but I haven't seen that in about 20 years. First dad, who's not really the dad, was played by Stephen McHattie. He's great as sleazy stand-in dad. He's also great in the bottle zombie movie Pontypool. Real dad was played by Martin Donovan, who I know I've seen in things. He's fine. He doesn't really have as much screen time as fake dad. The main villain is played by Michael Smiley, who I remember liking in Kill List. He definitely works as the slimy villain. There's a bit more gore in this than anticipated. Real Dad is stabbed with a poop-covered pen. Norval goes to town on a guy's genitals with a barbecue fork before wrapping the poor soul's head in plastic wrap and beating him to death with the plastic wrap tube. Norval is stabbed a bunch by the main villain with a spindle, which is a fancy word for a paper spike. Norval returns the spindle to the villain by placing it in the villain's brain that's exposed after a car accident. Lots of crazy, over-the-top intense gore in this family reunion romp. Come to Daddy is entertaining from start to end. It's a dark comedy that's goofy in all the right ways. I'll be on the lookout for anything Aunt Timpson directs or produces in the future. The only thing I've seen that he had a hand in producing that I didn't love was The Field Guide to Evil, and even that had good segments. I might need to revisit and finish the ABCs of Death series, which he also helped produce. Number 2, Critters 2, The Main Course, 1988, directed by Mick Garris. Brad goes back to his hometown to visit his grandma during Easter. Grandma bought a bunch of weird eggs from a junk seller for an Easter egg hunt. It turns out that they're critter eggs. The bounty hunters from the first movie, and Charlie, who is now a bounty hunter himself, come back to Earth. The town and bounty hunters work together to defeat the critters. The critters are the killers. Why didn't grandma just go to the grocery store to buy some eggs? Turns out sugar apples were used for the critter eggs. I want to try one of those someday. I wasn't originally planning on checking out Critters 2 so quickly, but since I finally watched the original, I was finally able to watch Red Letter Media's review of Critters. Turns out their review covered all the movies, but mainly 1 and 2. They said 2 was the better one, so once they were finished talking about the original, I paused the review and decided it was time to jump into the sequel. Critters 2 is a more exciting version of the first movie. Something I forgot to mention when talking about the first one was all the destruction. There are a lot of great explosions in the first movie. Critters 2 also has lots of destruction and explosions. It also ups the gore, and unlike the original, includes boobies. Boobies? In my PG-13 movie? Think of the children! I was going to bring up that Caddyshack, a PG film, also had boobies, but as it turns out, Caddyshack is rated R. Go figure. Boobage happens when Lee, the bounty hunter that has a hard time deciding who to transform into, sees a Playboy centerfold and decides to be a bombshell. Lee becomes so dummy thick that the bounty hunter's uniform can't handle the curves and tears off. It's a nice gag that Lee has a staple in their stomach after the transformation. Now, the centerfold isn't the sexiest person Lee transforms into. For a brief period, Lee transforms into Eddie Deason. Who's that? If you grew up watching Cartoon Network and heard Deason talk, you'd realize that he's none other than Mandark from Dexter's Laboratory. 
There's a goof where Lee's about to turn into Freddy Krueger, which is quickly staved off by Charlie. Lee transforms into the centerfold version again, just in time to be devoured after a critter ambush. R.I.P. Sexy Lee. The death is revealed by the others, finding a mostly skeletal arm with a bit of hand flesh still left. Come on, critters, clean your wing, er, uh, human limbs? There are starving aliens in outer space. The arm is one of the best instances of gore, and it's surprisingly gruesome for a PG-13 movie. The overall best gore is created by a giant ball of combined critters. The ball of teeth rolls over a man, leaving only a skeleton behind. It's a great bit. Critters 2 is full of even more fantastic practical effects. The best sequence in the entire movie has to be when the bounty hunters confront a bunch of critters that have taken over a fast food restaurant called the Hungry Heifer. Tons of critters explode and one even ends up in a deep fryer. The sheriff from the first movie is replaced by a new actor. It's weird because the sheriff is shown to be a badass in part 2 where he was useless and bit of a doofus in the original. If the same actor was kept, the complete character change wouldn't have worked. I didn't even realize the sheriff was supposed to be the same character. I kept thinking to myself, who's this hard-ass sheriff that everyone already knows? It can't be Mr. Wimpy from the original. The acting in Critters 2 is fine. The only returning cast members are Scott Grimes as Brad, Terrence Mann as Ugg, Don Keithopper as Charlie, and Lynn Shea. Turns out Lynn Shay is in so many New Line Cinema movies since she's the younger sister of the co-founder Robert Shay. I was surprised that more of the original cast didn't appear in the sequel. It looks like Nadine Vanderveld, who played the sister in the original, decided to do another bad puppet horror movie called Munchies instead. Come to think of it, there weren't a lot of roles in the sequel for the original cast. Dee Wallace could have replaced the grandma though. If you've never seen a Critters movie before, I recommend watching Critters 2 over the first one. It's basically the same movie but better. There's more action and more goofs. Number 3, Hubie Halloween 2020 directed by Stephen Brill. Hubie, the town punching bag, tries his best to keep Halloween safe every year. His new neighbor Walter is acting strange and a man has escaped an institution. People start disappearing. Hubie thinks Walter is the kidnapper, but finds out Walter escaped from a werewolf institution and the other escapee only left to find and bring back Walter. Hubie's mom is the actual kidnapper. She plans on burning Hubie's bullies at the stake. Hubie saves his bullies. His mother disappears. Hubie marries the girl of his dreams and becomes the mayor. No one is the killer. Hubie's mom wanted to be the killer real bad, but Hubie wouldn't allow it. Adam Sandler comedies have been awful for over a decade now. They've been so bad that I'm fondly remembering you don't mess with the Zohan. Ugh. I still have a certain affinity for his older movies though. It's probably nostalgia. I'm not mad at him for making bad comedies. If I could get paid to go on vacation with my friends, I would do it. Sandler has also proven that he can act when he feels like it. Nostalgia Me wanted to check out Hubie Halloween. Nostalgia Me can't be fully trusted though, so I did have some alcoholic beverages beforehand and during, which definitely helped me get in the right headspace for Hubie Halloween. Adam Sandler plays Hubert Dubois, a character that anyone and everyone dunks on. 
Children and adults alike mercilessly clown on this man. Early on in Hubie Ween, I almost took the plunge and put on subtitles because boy oh boy, Sandler's chosen goofy accent is almost completely unintelligible. Growing up, my parents said I was really hard to understand due to my constant mumbling. Over the years, they learned to understand the mumbling language of my younger self. Like my parents with my mumbling, all it took was time for me to start understanding Hubie most of the time. The continued beer drinking also helped. One thing that Hollow Hubie definitely deserves kudos for is physical and visual comedy. Hubie's constantly beefing it. He's sent flying off his bike. Whenever he's frightened, he destroys stuff like windows and Halloween decorations. It's funny to watch Adam Sandler freak out and fall down. Well, a little funny at least. Entertaining enough for drunk nostalgia me, which is what I'm trying to say. Throughout the movie, Hubie has his trusty thermos by his side, which he has modified into a Swiss Army thermos. It was fun to see the thermos transform into different gadgets. There are a surprising amount of recognizable celebrities in Hubie Ween. Kevin James, Rom Schneider, and Steve Buscemi are a bit expected at this point, but Ray Liotta, Maya Rudolph, Tim Meadows, Michael Chiklis, Keenan Thompson, Ben Stiller, and Shaquille O'Neal aren't. Well, SNL peeps stick together. Ben Stiller has been in Happy Madison movies in the past. Still, there are a lot of people in Hubie Halloween. Adam Sandler's wife Jackie and their kids Sadie and Sonny are also in it. As well as that Will kid from Stranger Things who's all grown up looking now. Is Hubie Halloween a good movie? No. Is it a comedy with lots of laughs? No. Did I laugh at least a few times while watching Hubie Halloween? A couple. There were some laughs here and there. I'm ashamed to admit that I laughed at seeing an old lady wearing a shirt that said Boner Donor on it. Hubie's mom in her raunchy shirts. She wears at least five different shirts with juvenile text on them, but that first shirt, Boner Donor, sure got me. Here's where I was going to list the other laugh out loud moments I had while watching Hubie Halloween, but I can't remember them. Shaq having a feminine radio voice was humorous, I guess. Hubie Halloween is a crappy Adam Sandler comedy, but if you already have Netflix, any nostalgia for Sandler, and alcohol in your fridge that you're looking to drink, it's not the worst thing you could put on. Sometimes you just want to turn off your brain and watch Adam Sandler goof around with Halloween as a backdrop. Scratch all that. Just watch Ernest Scared Stupid again. That movie is still incredible. Number 4, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, 1988, directed by Steven Chiodo. Killer clowns from outer space land their spaceship near a small Earth town. They start killing and capturing people. A young couple, Mike and Debbie, are the first to find out about the clowns. They warn the police. Dave, Debbie's cop ex-boyfriend, helps them deal with the clowns. Mike's friends, the Terenzi brothers, also assist. Together they defeat the clowns and blow up their spaceship. I say together, but Dave did mostly everything. The killer clowns from outer space are the... Killers. I've been on a Chiodo Brothers kick recently. I started with Critters 1 and 2. Then I did a rewatch of Ernest Scared Stupid, which repurposed some of the clowns from Killer Clowns from Outer Space into Trolls. 
and realize I've never actually seen killer clowns from outer space. I decided it was time to inundate myself with cosmic clowns. I wish I could say that I loved KKFOS. The truth is, it doesn't work as a whole. KKFOS has amazing and entertaining practical effects. The clowns look disturbing and real. There's multiple points in the movie where people are happy to see these clowns, which is bonkers, seeing as how legitimately freaky they look. I do think that one element would have made the clowns even more perfect, and that would be a glossy layer of paint. If you look at a comparison between the clowns and the trolls they were repurposed into for Ernest Scared Stupid, you'll see that the glossy look of the trolls makes them look even more alive and gross. It's totally possible that the matte look of the clowns was done purposely to better replicate powdered faces, but a glossy layer would have helped the clowns look more disgusting and lifelike. That's not to say that the clowns don't look incredible. The trolls ended up looking just a little bit better. Looking closely, it's possible that the trolls were misted between takes. The glossy moisture look really brings the creatures to life. Still, the clowns look amazing, and not only the clowns, the production design is also wonderful. The clown spaceship looks like a wacky circus take on German expressionism. All of the details from the silly big red buttons to the toy-like levers are delightful. There's a bunch of different brightly colored clown space guns that are all wonderful. The cotton candy cocoons look great. I'd love to know how many of those were made because there are oodles of cotton candy cocoons. I'm not a big cotton candy fan myself. If any moisture is present while you're trying to eat the fluffy sugar, you feel sticky for hours afterwards. I haven't tried eating it in years though, so Maybe adult me would be able to partake in the cotton candy with less stickiness. One of the biggest issues with KKFOS is the sound design. The sound levels are all over the place. The voices for the clowns are understated and constantly drowned out by other sound effects and dialogue. The score is awful. It's endearing, but awful. The killer clown march that constantly pops up sounds like a MIDI ringtone you'd have pre-installed on your first flip phone. Is it strangely catchy? Yes. Is it objectively bad? Yes. I appreciate the inclusion of a made-for-the-movie theme song, though. It was even performed by the Dickies. The theme song trend needs to come back. Every movie should start with credits where a cheesy theme written for the film is played. Killer Clowns is rated PG-13, so gore expectations were pretty low. You see some bloody faces sticking out of cotton candy cocoons. That's a majority of the gore. A security guard that just wanted to eat a sandwich is melted by acid pies, but you don't really see much melty gore. The best gore is by and far when the little clown uppercuts a douchebag biker's head clean off his shoulders. The jerk biker trashed the little clown's bike, so if that had been the only kill in the movie, the clowns wouldn't have been put on the killer list. That Shoryuken decapitation was earned, bucko. In the beginning of Space Clowns, a dog is scooped up in a comically large net. The dog is never confirmed dead, so I'm not giving y'all a pet warning. My headcanon is that the dog was in the clown car at the end. He just didn't get out before the credits rolled. The acting is a mixed bag, almost everyone is terrible, but I really liked Suzanne Snyder as Debbie. She brought a great energy to the character. She plays someone named Brenda in Return of the Living Dead Part 2, which I just realized I've never seen. I've only watched one in three. 
The poster for Return of the Living Dead Part 2 makes me think of Falcor from The NeverEnding Story. That's what the zombie fog looks like to me. Somehow I've lived 30 years without seeing that either. It's weird that the space clowns decided to kidnap Earth Woman and balloons for what I'm assuming were nefarious purposes, since lady clowns are shown to exist. The Terenzi bros even get intimate with the lady clowns. I just wanted to bring up that the Terenzi brothers may or may not have gone all the way with lady space clowns. Killer Clowns from Outer Space is far from a masterpiece, but should be seen by practical effects loving horror fans. The pacing and human characters aren't stellar, but the sets, props, and clowns definitely are. Number 5, Friday the 13th Part 2, 1981, directed by Steven Miner. Alice, the final girl of the first movie, is killed after finding Pamela's head in her fridge. Five years later, a bunch of camp counselors make their way out to a new camp close to Camp Crystal Lake. Jason's still alive. He starts offing the new counselors. Ginny and her boyfriend Paul are the only survivors after Ginny takes down Jason with the machete. Jason then jumps through a window to attack the couple. Ginny wakes up as she's being loaded into an ambulance. Jason is the killer. Josh, don't you only watch horror movies you've never seen for the podcast? Um, yeah, that's correct. I'm a fraud. The only Friday the 13th movies I've seen before now were the original and Freddy vs. Jason. I might have seen the 2009 reboot, but I can't remember. I know you are all shocked. This horror fan that loves slashers never watched all of the Friday the 13th. I've seen clips from them and felt like I know all about them through cultural osmosis. While I'm confessing my sins, I haven't seen all the Halloweens either. I've only seen the original Season of the Witch, The Curse of Michael Myers, Rob Zombie 1, and I think H2O. I'm tired of hiding. It's time for me to watch all of the Friday the 13th and Halloweens, starting with the Friday the 13th. As we all know, Pamela Voorhees is the killer in part one. She kills because banging counselors let her Jason die. Or did they? How would she even know they were banging? Was there a camp meeting that went like, Hey everybody, that weirdo Jason, uh, sorry Pam, that sweet boy Jason totally drowned. Why wasn't anyone keeping an eye on him? Barry and Claudette, you were on lifeguard duty. What happened? Oops, we were getting down to Bone Town at that time. Sorry Pam. The first two people that die are the same counselors that were supposed to be watching Jason, right? Anyway, jokes on Pam, Jason's super alive. You murdered all those kids for nothing and got your head removed from your shoulders as a reward. No one likes watching their mom be decapitated, so now Jason, who's actually alive, has picked up his mother's counselor-killing mantle. Friday the 13th Part 2 is a fun time. It has the amazing wheelchair-bound guy takes a machete to the face and rolls down the stairs kill. It also teaches us a valuable lesson. You should always go to the bar and stay until closing time. The people that stayed behind at camp, dead. The people that came home from the bar early, mostly dead. The people that stayed at the bar all night long, still breathing, baby. There's a crazy old man named Ralph that's always trying to warn people that they'll be murdered if they go near Camp Crystal Lake. No one pays him any mind. His methods of warning people aren't the best. If only Ralph could have warned the campgoers with a coherent letter or a calm, cool, and collected phone call. Maybe more people would have survived. Ralph doesn't. Jason kills Ralph, the best character in movie 2. R.I.P. Ralph. 
You and your bucket hat will truly be missed. There was almost a pet warning. There is a girl who's the terrible owner of a dog named Muffin. Muffin disappears. Some kids find what looks like Muffin's corpse, but Muffin shows up, still kicking it, at the end of the movie. Turns out that was a different dead dog. Here's hoping that Muffin went on to find a forever home that actually cared about her. The gore is a bit better in part two. Tom Savini decided not to be a part of the sequel. His gore in the original isn't that great. I'm mostly referring to Pam's decapitation. It wasn't Savini's best work. Since I'm not going to give a full section to the first movie, since I had already seen that years ago, real animal death warning. A snake is killed in the first one. It's messed up. I don't want to see real animal death. Poor snake. Back to talking about F2. Jason's love for breaking windows by grabbing people through them, jumping through them, and throwing people through them starts in the sequel. I can't recall if Jason does the latter in this installment, but the guy hates windows. I like the baghead look of Jason in F2, but found Steve Dash's performance lacking. That's probably because I'm so used to hulking, unstoppable, monster Jason though. The rest of the acting? Good enough. There's awful delivery here and there, but acting isn't going to be a strong suit of this series. If you haven't, you should definitely check out both the first and second Friday the 13th movies. If you watch the first and don't want to see animal death, skip ahead a bit after you see a snake in a cabin. While watching part two, my fiance and I noted that one of the girls looked crazy young. Turns out she was 16 and had filmed a much longer sex scene than what made it into the movie. Paramount found out that she was underage and promptly destroyed all of the film that showed nudity. How her age wasn't known beforehand is both baffling and shady. Number 6, Friday the 13th, Part 3, 1982, directed by Stephen Miner. Jason, who's still alive, kills a couple that own a store. A girl named Chris takes her friends to her old family house that's located at Crystal Lake. Jason starts murdering all the friends and a group of bikers that showed up to steal gas as revenge for a confrontation they had with some of the friends at a gas station. Chris ends up the sole survivor after she plants an axe into Jason's head. Chris goes out on the lake and hallucinates that Jason and his mother's corpse attack her. The police take Chris to safety, and Jason is shown lying on the ground with the axe still on his head. Jason is the killer. No, unfortunately, I didn't get to watch this in its full 3D glory. Whenever 3D was obviously supposed to be happening, I would pretend like it was and scream that the snake, eyeball, yo-yo, chain wrap fist, harpoon, etc. was coming right at me, so the 3D fun wasn't completely lost. It was funny being able to see the wire that was used to make most of these things barrel towards the center of the screen. I almost thought I was going to have to do a pet warning when I saw some dead bunnies, but a snake did that. That's nature. I'm starting to think Jason isn't an animal killer. The kills in F3D aren't all that exciting. Most kills are your run-of-the-mill stabs with stuff like pitchforks and fire pokers. The fire poker kill was kinda neat considering it was red hot before going through a body which cooled off the poker with blood. Would the wound be instantly cauterized if that happened? It would definitely cause a lot of damage, but maybe you could survive that. Maybe? 
F3D is the first in the series to have the stoner archetype. Weed appears before this movie, but Weed was the dude that looked like Tommy Chong's whole deal. 3 is also the first movie to include a chubby character. That would be Shelly. Shelly is odd. He pretends to be dead right when everyone arrives at the house always complains that no one will ever love him, and pops out of the lake in a wetsuit with a harpoon gun to scare a girl that wasn't into him. Now, Shelly is no looker, but maybe people would like him at least a little if he'd stop acting like a jackass. Shelly is a very important character though. He's the one that brought a hockey mask. Shelly is behind Jason's iconic look. The real person behind the mask is Martin J. Sadoff, who just happened to have a hockey mask with him when they were doing mask tests. It's kind of crazy that the Jason everyone pictures first makes an appearance in the third movie. It would be hilarious if whoever owns the series, George Lucas, the first movie, and had CGI all grown up hockey mask wearing Jason jump out of the water superimposed over Lil Jason. Since Ralph died before he could make it into F3D, my favorite character was Harold, the shop owner who loved eating snacks and being nice to animals. He's the first to die. I didn't care for Ralph 2.0, who was an old man sleeping in the road that shoved an eyeball in my face after he woke up. I think if an oddball showed me a human eye and warned me not to go somewhere, I'd be more inclined to listen to him. Richard Brooker played Jason. He had a much more intimidating presence than Steve Dash. Final Girl Chris tells a story about how she ran into Jason in the woods and woke up in her bed. During the climax, Jason raises his mask for just a second to show her his face. Chris screams, It's you! You weren't able to deduce that from the murder and his hulking frame? You had to see his face. The best kill in Friday the 13th Part 3 is easily when Jason crushes Chris's on-again, off-again boyfriend's head with his bare hands, causing an eyeball to pop out. That would have been fun to see in 3D. That boyfriend character's head was huge. Maybe Jason wouldn't have been able to get a grip on the boyfriend's head so easily if it had been normal size. Jason's still destroying windows. Whenever someone is near one, I knew Jason was going to shatter the silence. As far as themes go, F3D's is a funky disco banger that'll have you grooving. It's early to call, but it might be the best theme. Friday the 13th Part 3 does more of the same, but that's alright. It's still a fun time. Maybe someday I'll actually watch it in glorious 3D. Number 7, The Haunting of Bly Manor 2020, created by Mike Flanagan. Hmm, this will be spoilers galore, but I'm not going to do a full summary of what happens. After the success of Hill House, Mike Flanagan was given the opportunity to create another season. Instead of goofing off again with the Hill House family, Bly Manor instead decided to keep some actors but be a completely different story about a spooky rich person house. I think spooky rich person house is going to be the central theme in each season. I loved Hill House until the ending. The ending of Hill House was terrible. My headcanon is that everyone ended up dead, trapped in the red door room. There are some windows in the last episode that give the everyone's dead theory some weight, but I'm pretty sure it's been discredited by Flanagan. Up until the ending, Hill House was spooky and amazing. What about Bly Manor? Not so much. Bly Manor has some of the worst pacing I've ever seen. There are some obvious reveals, 
Gross is a ghost. Any horror fan should realize this after she refuses to eat twice. Bly Manor spends a whole episode to reveal that she's dead. One of my biggest issues with Bly is how it hits viewers over the head when it comes to obvious reveals. The kids are possessed by Peter and Jessel. It's painfully obvious from the get-go, yet Bly spends a ton of time making sure that you know that the kids are possessed. When Danny is snatched up by the late ghost, Bly decides to push the climax off for another hour and inserts an hour-long exposition dump about who the late ghost is. I didn't need the backstory. There must have been a creative way to show that ghosts slowly but surely lose more of themselves as years pass, besides an hour-long exposition dump. After the Gross is a Ghost episode, all momentum died just like she did at the bottom of the well. I was hoping there would be some interesting reveal or anything new and exciting in the last half of the season, but almost everything was obvious from the start. If you want to have British characters, maybe you should find British actors. I get wanting to keep your buds on board, but if you don't have a character written for them in your new season, don't just throw them into a role and have them do a terrible accent. I did really enjoy Victoria Pedretti's performance as Danny. Right before starting Bly Manor, I had finished You. I thought I wouldn't be able to see Pedretti as a new character, but she was great. I'll talk about You some other time. I liked Oliver Jackson Cohen as Peter Quint, and as I suspected, he's super British. His accent was way too good for him to be American. Others I thought did a great job were Raul Coley as Owen and Tania Miller as Gross. I didn't like the movie Starry Eyes as a whole, but I remember Alex Esso giving a decent performance in it. In Flanagan's stuff, I haven't liked her at all. That's not her fault. She's not Shelley Duvall, or British, the latter being an issue for her role in Bly Manor. Flanagan needs to give her a role that's actually for her and not just continue trying to shove a square peg in a round hole. Same with Henry Thomas. He's not Jack Nicholson or British. If you're confused, those actors played Jack and Wendy Torrance in Doctor Sleep. Even though I've been dogging on Bly Manor, it's still a beautifully crafted season. It's nice to look at. It doesn't have the Netflix out-of-focus garbage like Sabrina and You, which is nice. Is Bly Manor a great spooky season to watch during the Halloween time? No, not really. Is it an okay love story that meanders a bit too much but is still entertaining? Yeah. It would have been nice if Bly Manor was a bit more concise and didn't talk down to its audience. That's a wrap on Blank is the Killer 82, A Strange Death, Alien Attacks, and Lethal Lakes. I'm also still shocked that I haven't watched all the Friday the 13ths and Halloweens. If you dug what you heard, consider leaving a rating or review on iTunes. Episode 83 will be out on November 1st, and will include a lot of Jason Voorhees. Since you won't hear from me until after the big day, happy Halloween! Until next time, make sure to have an up-to-date picture of any estranged relative you plan on visiting. You don't want Nana to be an imposter, do you? <laughs>